Be like Mike. If you were born in the 1990s or after, you probably don't remember this unless you looked it up on YouTube, but it was an advertising campaign that starred Michael Jordan uh, for Gatorade in the early 90s. I think 91 was when it first aired. It showed children and adults playing basketball with Michael Jordan to the song, the Be Like Mike, right? You, might, you maybe not remember. Let me give you a taste. I haven't sung my sermons in a while. Let me give, I don't remember how this goes completely either, but you remember the words, right? Sometimes I dream that he is, if you know the song, please sing with me because I don't remember all the, he is me. You've got to see that's how I dream to be. You know this part, right? Like Mike, I want to, no one knows this song. I want to be like Mike. Remember, I think they came back at different seasons, but those Reebok pump shoes that really did nothing, but it was really cool to pump that little thing. And if you didn't like your friend because you're jealous of them, you'd poke somewhere so they wouldn't pump up anymore. My friend did that to one of my other friend's shoes. I was like, that's so mean. Getting buying those shoes, getting Gatorade. You get these things because you're trying to model yourself after someone you want to be like. That's why that, that advertising campaign was so effective. Jordan was quite the name at the time and still is for many generations later. You, you want to be like him. People are attracted to that because you, you want models. In fact, every single one of us is looking for people to emulate so that we can grow in the area that we want to grow in. And this is something we do naturally and something we pursue intentionally sometimes. Naturally, think about why do Canadians have Canadian accents? Because they are around other people who have the same exact accent. Why do people from Dallas, if they're from a part with an accent from Texas, speak like Texans? Because they speak and hang around people with the same exact accent. People grow up intentionally and sometimes unintentionally imitating and sounding and acting and thinking like the people that are around them. That's why as you're raising kids, we're so concerned sometimes about the kinds of friends or people our kids hang out with because we know unintentionally or sometimes very intentionally, they end up copying, imitating, being like the people they hang around. And this is true not just of everyday life, this is true of spiritual practices. How did you learn to pray? Whether that happened intentionally, you, you took some active steps to figure out how to pray, or you did, learned it unintentionally. You ever notice you can kind of tell the idiosyncrasies of someone of who they learned to pray with, from? So uh, many of us have, have this idiosyncrasy, right? We, we bless the food. God, we, we bless this whatever it is, right? So I've heard people bless the, the pizza in Mountain Dew. I'm like, that, I don't think blessing that will make it much better as you consume it. But that's some of the idiosyncrasies we pick up. We bless the food. Where does that come from? Or people who repeat, you know, the titles of God in their prayers many, many, many times to say, Father, Father, Father. They just say it because they say that because they've heard other people pray exactly that way, whether they intentionally copied that or not. We, we model, we, we mimic people in our Christian life, whether we notice it or not. It's the same with advertising. That's why it works, because we end up wanting to be like the people those commercials and products put before us. That's why Be Like Mike was known to be one of the most uh, successful advertising campaigns for sports ever. This is always how humanity grows and learns. We, we go through imitation. We go through models, role models, mentors, having people around us 
that we can emulate and copy. And so this is why you find throughout Paul's letters, he will often say, imitate me. Not in a boastful way. He's saying, I'm trying to imitate Jesus. And so if you want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus, follow me. Exactly the same thing that Jesus said when he called his disciples. He didn't just call them to learn some truths in their minds. He said, follow me, live life with me, be with me. We've seen throughout the book of Philippians, one of Paul's main concerns is to live a life worthy of the calling and the gospel that they have. In chapter 2, we saw a couple weeks ago that he wants this church to have the mind of Jesus, that they would look to the interests of others even before their own interests. And teaching these truths are very important. And yet Paul understands teaching has to be matched with modeling. He knows the Philippians cannot absorb what he's trying to teach them unless they also see this truth embodied before them. And that's what you get in this section. It seems like a very mundane section. He's just talking about the travel plans of two individuals, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And many of us may just say, well, there's really not much here to learn from. But he's commending to us role models who live worthy of the gospel. Imitate these guys. He's commending to us people who understand how to put the interests of others even before themselves. If you want to live like that, look at these guys. I'm sending them your way. Spend time with them. Honor them. Follow them. Listen to this truth I've been writing to you about and look at these people and imitate them. Be like those guys because they're being like Jesus. Follow these examples. If you wanted one phrase to kind of encapsulate this section, it's just that. Follow these examples. Timothy and Epaphroditus are very clear here. That's the breakdown of this section, 19 to 24 is Timothy, 25 to 30 is Epaphroditus. And yeah, I have a three-point sermon for you because I think implied in this is also the Paul's example. He doesn't commend himself, but implicitly we see Paul's example, and then we can look at Timothy's example, and then Epaphroditus's example. That's our three points. Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus follow these examples, these role models. Now, Paul, first, he doesn't commend himself, but even in his commendation of Timothy, Epaphroditus, we, we learn about his own example, his love, his concern, his commitment to the church. I think a lot of people have this stereotypical view of Paul as a solitary person, right? He's writing really thick theology in letters. So much to the point where, you know, when you listen to other people talk about Paul, like Peter, close person working with Paul in the ministry, he says, Paul writes such complicated, difficult to understand things. That's literally in Paul's letter, or Peter's letters, writing about Paul. So we think of Paul as just this really like kind of brainy, very intellectual person. Also, he, he speaks very long sermons. If you remember in that story in Acts, I think in later parts of Acts, he's preaching and he preaches such a long sermon and people are trying to honor him, right? The guy, Eutychus, just falls asleep and he dies. I mean, I've never preached someone to the point to die, but Paul did. He preached such long sermons. Thankfully, God raised him back. But that guy fell asleep in his sermons. Paul preached long sermons. So we think of him as just really brainy, very, very heady. But if you read Paul's letters, it's not just that. He is that in many ways. He's full of love and relationship and friendship and concern. Look what he says in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. 
Right? They don't have email. They don't have phone calls. The only way that they would get information back and forth was messengers. And there wasn't like a, a USPS or something. They had to do it personally. And so Epaphroditus is the messenger from the Philippians. Timothy, the co-laborer with Paul, he would go and bring news of the different churches that they worked with back to Paul and forth about Paul. See, look at what he says. I hope to send Timothy. I want to also be cheered by news of you. Nothing holds Paul back from his commitment, his concern, his love, his friendship with the Philippians. Even prison isn't going to hold him back. The distance, the bars, that sickness, nothing will stop him from his commitment and love and concern to the Philippians. So yes, he's writing thick theology for them. But he's like, I love you. I want to be with you. I want to know what's going on with you. He's in prison. He's using whatever technology is available at his disposal at the time, which is letter writing. And he's going to send Timothy, who he loves, who he probably needs more than, than he knows. And he's going to send someone he really needs to, to carry this news. So he's doing everything he can to get in touch with the Philippian church. He's going to send Timothy on a 700-plus mile journey just to tell them how Paul is doing. He loves them. Look at verses 23 to 24. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So it's not enough just that he is going to send Timothy. He not only says, I want to be with you, he's going to go if he's able to. This world is not easy to traverse. Like we can fly across this entire country in a day, less than a day, right? This is hundreds of miles, months sometimes, depending on if he gets shipwrecked along the way and different things that happen. He's committed to them to the point where he's sending his most trusted friend. Nothing is going to stop him if he's able to, to be in their presence. We should emulate, follow Paul's example of embodied, committed friendship. I think what we see here from Paul emulated for us is he's committed personal friendship and relationship, embodied friendship with the Philippians. And this is so relevant for us as we are now coming out of the pandemic. Because during the pandemic, there are probably at least these two things we've learned about commitment and friendship and communication, right? First lesson we probably learned immediately was technology is amazing. With all the stay-at-home orders, travel restrictions, increased isolation, technology helped us connect. Think about how much harder it would have been to connect with friends, family, do church without phone calls, without video calls, without Skype and Zoom and all the different various tools we have at our disposal, without YouTube to live stream our church or Facebook Live or many of the different things we use. Think about how much more difficult it would have been. So technology, first lesson, technology is amazing. Second lesson is technology can never replace face-to-face -face embodied friendship. Because how many of us immediately, right, the first week or so, we're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I don't have to commute to work anymore. And the technology allows me to. And eventually like, I cannot take another meeting, right? I can't sit on this call as a teacher with these kids anymore. I'm just going to play a video for them. I, I, can't, I can't sit in this business meeting anymore. I'm just going to black my I mean, screen. Every student did that forever, right? Just black the screen. You go play Minecraft. You, know, you just can't engage anymore, Technology can never replace face-to-face -face embodied friendships. Another way to state this is that technology is a great supplement. It's never a replacement. 
It's a terrible replacement, actually. Paul knew it. He knew even if he sent Timothy in this letter, as good as that can be in their time, it doesn't replace his presence. I think we need to follow Paul's example here. Be committed to embodied face-to-face friendships. It's so relevant for us. I think we, we, many of us, we realized how for granted we took those face-to-face friendships and how intentional we need to be about them. As we're coming out of this pandemic, my charge to us as a church is to pursue and cultivate deep face-to-face friendship, especially with the body of Christ. Don't let distance Comfort, apathy, stop you from being the body that God calls us to be a part of. I think when people think about church, we we rightly think about church worship services, programs, the the service uh, opportunities we have, all very crucial, all very important, but all of these should take place in the context of embodied presence and relationship. And so we should learn from Paul's example, be committed to -to face-to-face embodied, present friendship. Maybe that's the exhortation or correction you need today. Maybe you've been doing that and you need to start including others who've kind of wandered away from those kinds of friendships. Second example Paul tells us to follow, actually the two main ones, the first one being Timothy. In verses 19 to 24, Paul speaks about Timothy. If you don't remember his background, he has a mother, a grandmother who are believers, a father who was Greek and he was not. He was discipled by his parents, uh, sorry, his mother and his grandmother, as you see in 2 Timothy. And also uh, Paul takes him as a young man, brings him along his missionary journeys. He commends us to follow Timothy's example because he is actually someone, as Paul talked about in chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, you know what, live a life worthy of the gospel. Here's someone who does that. Here's someone who actually can embody, you can see Philippians chapter 2, he just wrote. Have this mind among yourselves. Don't don't just only look to your own interests, but the interests of others, even their interests above yours. If you want to see this, Paul says, look at Timothy. Look at Timothy's life. We read about his selflessness in verses 20 to 21. For I have no one like him. That's a huge statement who will be genuinely concerned from your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. He's been telling the Philippians, put others' interests. If you want to embody the gospel, if you want to be a faithful witness, if you want to be the people in church, God calls us to be, you need to, just as Jesus did, put other people first. And that's hard. And here's one example of someone I know who does this. It's Timothy. Here you can see it in the flesh. He knows how to put other people's welfare before his own. I read about earlier in chapter one, there were people who were preaching at the expense of Paul for personal gain. They were preaching the true gospel and yet they were using Paul's imprisonment to build a platform for themselves. They're putting themselves first. And here's Paul saying, here's Timothy who knows how to put other people's welfare before his own. He's... He's someone who is supernaturally empowered by the Spirit. Because you know what? Selfishness is natural in our sinful self. Selflessness is supernaturally possible because of the Spirit. This is the kind of leader Paul says we should follow. We should emulate Timothy. I was listening to a podcast this week about 
a very famous church that closed a number of years ago. Super influential, significant. The lead pastor of this church was incredibly popular, wrote many books, had a huge following, and this church, uh, less than a decade ago, just came crumbling down and is no longer. Matter of months, it was gone, completely. 15 plus thousand people, many campuses, in a matter of months, just completely gone. One of the leaders reflecting on this podcast was talking about this sentiment. I think it's so important. He says, Christians in America tend to elevate leaders based upon their charisma in a point where their charisma outpaces their character. And we do this over and over again because we're infatuated with people who seem to have it together or seem to have something we want. And so that's why we even uplift people who are narcissists sometimes because we want that. We're looking for those kinds of models, but Scripture never tells us to look and emulate leaders like that. And if we keep doing this, actually, the part of the podcast is reflecting not just in the past event. He's saying this still happens all over the place in the church today. And this is why we have so many deep-rooted problems in our church because we're not searching for leaders like God did when he was searching for a king. You know, he, he's looking at David, this small person no one looks at. Everyone's saying, we want Saul. And God's, no, he's looking at the heart and he sees David. We're not doing it like that. We're doing like all the other people looking for Saul. And maybe the models, and I think I, our church, and our leaders, I've sensed this guiltiness among ourselves at times. Maybe we, we choose people to emulate that are starkly different from the ones given to us in Scripture. Paul commends the Philippians, emulate Timothy. Not because he's someone who's really impressive with his speech, I mean, rhetoric was a very important thing in their time. He was not someone who could draw entertainment value, who could hold an audience with his, his lines and draw a laugh here and there. He's saying, emulate Timothy because he knows how to put other people first. And you need to do that if you want to follow Jesus. If you want to embody and live a life worthy of the gospel, Timothy does it because he does it by putting other people first. That's exactly like Christ, who even though he was God, did not use his essence of being God for his own advantage. He surrendered. He, he gave up his privileges and rights, not his godness. He gave up his rights and privileges to die on a cross for our sins. And that's what Timothy does with his life. He puts other people first. And we, as readers of this letter, are being charged to also do the same. A second thing we learn from Timothy is he served as a son to a father, Paul. Look at verse 22. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. There's this father-son relationship. This would have been a really good passage last week for Father's Day. I think, think this section is all very good for that. But listen to the family dynamic. And I think immediately this reminds me of something we know in our heads, but I think we, we are, we're short of living in light of this truth in our culture especially in a very highly individualistic, guarded culture, right? This father-son dynamic is not just nice titles and greetings because throughout the New Testament, you see over and over again, when you are bought by the blood of Jesus, that's not just an individual salvation. You are bought by the blood of Jesus into a new family, new brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and uncles and aunts. And that is your family who are in Christ, you have people you are now committed to by the blood of Jesus more than your physical blood. And that's what you see throughout the New Testament. It's something that in our culture is difficult because of the individualism. It's difficult because we, we tend to 
highlight and emphasize in the same way our culture does, this independence, ourselves, maybe just our immediate family, but maybe if you have an Eastern background, it's your blood family, but we realize throughout scripture, there's something that's more important than that blood. It's the blood of Christ. And you see Paul and Timothy emulate this. There's a sense of commitment and responsibility to each other. I remember someone teaching me a long time ago, I forgot who it was, but I've always remembered this, that in the Christian life, you should always have these three kinds of relationships, more than just three people, but at least these three kinds of relationships in your life. You need a Paul, you need a Silas, and you need a Timothy. You need a spiritual father, a spiritual son, and a spiritual peer. Or you can imagine it being spiritual mother, spiritual daughter, and spiritual peer. Timothy models this need for people, and Paul does too here. He's not an isolated leader. He has a spiritual father. He's submitted to someone who can, and can encourage him and rebuke him. And this is the problem of our, that's in our churches because we live in this culture and we just swim in it. We don't even notice it because it's just our culture. We are heightened hyper-individualism. Independence is supreme. Where if you look at scripture over and over again, the church is a dependent body on Jesus. And so when we think about vision and mission and what we should do in our city and the world, these are not things we just imagine on our own. We are directed by the instructions and commands of Jesus. We are dependent on the Holy Spirit. We can do nothing, right? John 15, nothing apart from Jesus. We don't always live like that, but we, it's true. We can't do anything unless Jesus wants us to. We are dependent as a church collectively. We're also dependent individuals. And this is where we don't like this because so much of our life, based upon Western individualism, based upon performance from our Eastern culture, if you come from one, if you're an immigrant, every single immigrant, whether you come from Europe or Asia or Latin America, every single immigrant family who comes here for a better life, we have this embedded in us. Work hard because you can do it on your own and you need to prove it to yourself. <laughs> and this comes rubbing against the church family that says, you are dependent on one another. I need you. And that's hard to say. It's hard to live in light of that truth. We are dependent people. Because everyone in our culture says, I don't need anyone. But the church says, we are definitely dependent. We cannot grow. We need each other. We can't grow without one another. And see, this is where we get in trouble in the Christian life. We start following the, the models of our culture of individualism, apart from what Scripture is telling us, being dependent, where you have spiritual fathers, sons, and peers. Who, who's your Silas, your peer in your life? Are, are you doing life and ministry completely alone? This is one of the sad things. In the most connected time in human history, based upon technology advances, at least in connection in terms of available information, we, there's a growing sense of loneliness and lack of friendship. It's sad, I was hanging out with a bunch of pastors and we were processing friendships and many of us in that room, there's a room of 50 of us, we asked the question, do you have friends? And over 80% of them, if by this, I don't have time for it, but a long rubric of what genuine friendship looks like, 80% of them said, no, they don't have a single friend. And that's true of pastors, that's true of people in our church. Who's the Silas in your life? Who, who's the one who's co-laboring with you? who you share life with. They know everything broken about you and they pour grace upon that. 
and they know all the good about you and they encourage you in light of Jesus. They keep you from being boastful. Who are those Silas's in your life? Are you doing life, ministry completely by yourself even though you're around a ton of people? Because we all know it's easy to be alone even in a sea of people. Who's your Silas? Do you have a Timothy? Who are you pouring your life into? Who, who are you giving your time, your energy, your resources to? Who is your Paul, the one you're willing to submit to, the one you're willing to say, I'm going to tell you and you need to tell me, and you need to put me in my place sometimes, and I give you the right to do that. I had a mentor in seminary who modeled many of this. There was three of us who were interns, two of us uh, at the same seminary, one at a different one, but this one pastor, we all in the same church, he sat with us for two and a half years every single Tuesday evening in his house, sometimes just to hang out. His wife and him would cook home-cooked meals for us, which was amazing during seminary as a poor seminarian, really not eating very healthily or well. His wife would cook us this great meal. Sometimes he would. He would just do life with us. Sometimes it was just to, to talk about things he was interested in. He was super interested in, in working on this really old car, and he would talk to us about that process, try and process you know, lessons he was learning about life and everything from that. He would sometimes talk to us about practical things. He's the person who taught me how to baptize. I remember I was in this class called Pastoral Duties in Seminary. You talk about communion, you talk about baptism, you talk about uh, baby dedication, you talk about all the things, uh, you talk about hospital visitation, all the things you do as a pastor. And he asked me this question once, he knew we were going through this class. He's like, Joey, how are you going to baptize someone who's six foot? <laughs> I'm like, I have no idea. I've wrote like hundreds of, I've read hundreds of pages on baptism. I've written papers on baptism. No one ever asked me that question. He's like, let me show you how. And so I've baptized people, most, like 90% of people are much, even like sixth graders are sometimes taller than me. So I can, I had to learn that he knew exactly what I needed. He, he showed me how to baptize someone who's taller than me without full immersion baptizing, not just, I can sprinkle anyone taller than me, but how do we get them in the water and safely get them out? He, he taught me how to preach. He gave us time in the pulpit, even though we were young seminarians. He, he had us, so we preached in Christmas time. And in July, he had us finish our Christmas sermons because <laughs> he's like, I'm going to work on this with you over months. He had us manuscript every single word. He's like, we're going to read your sermons together encourage one another, challenge each other. That was my Paul. I had Silas's I was co-laboring with. And then as a youth intern, I had many of those youth. It was amaz it's amazing to me. That was impressive. Probably it was that mentor who challenged me about Paul, Timothy's, and Silas's in my life because this is where I experienced it most uh, intensely because he was like, you, you need to find Timothy's in your life. I was the junior, I was the only junior high worker. I mean, our JS has, if you work with our JS in our church, I love you so much and I know how hard it is because I was the only junior high worker with 30 kids by myself for two years because we didn't have any volunteers. So our church is incredibly blessed. But, you know, in the midst of that, it's chaos, right? It's just this, hey, you can't handle 30 kids by yourself. You can't handle 10 kids by yourself. So I, you know, obviously taught. I tried to disciple as best as I could, try to use certain leaders in the group. I focused on two guys who everyone said, these two kids are the worst kids in the junior high. I was like, well, if I can, control, if I can get them kind of okay, then the rest of the group will probably follow along. And I spent a lot of time praying with them, meeting with them. I don't remember half the things I taught them. And when I talk to them now, they don't remember anything I taught them really either. But the presence... 
These crazy kids, these two boys, one of them today is a youth pastor in Contra Costa Valley here. One of them lives, actually both of them live in the Bay Area. One of them lives in San Francisco. He's just working in tech, following Jesus. And I was like, this, this is what happens when you are committed to embodied relationships. You have someone you're willing to submit to, someone you're pouring your life in, someone you're co-laboring with. We learned that from Timothy. Not only his selflessness, you see this network of friendships and relationships we need as the body of Christ. Third example, Epaphroditus. We read about him in verses 25 to 30. He was sent from the Philippian church to Paul. So he's making this incredible trek, 700 miles as well. And he goes along the way, and he, we need to understand something about the context. The reason he sent from the Philippians to Paul wasn't just because he wanted to keep him company. Literally, Paul would die unless someone was sent to care for him or someone cared for him locally because their prison system wasn't like ours. If you are imprisoned, jailed, the state cares for your physical needs. It may not be very nice, but they're not going to let you die. In their state, if no one brings you food or what you need, clothing, you'll die because they don't give you anything. And so literally people had to be sent to them, whether in the local context or in this case from the Philippian church to provide for Paul's needs. So literally when he says provide for his needs, it's physical, real needs, food, clothing, writing uh, instruments and paper to, or papyri to, to write things on. He was cared for by Epaphroditus. But during the journey, we don't know exactly what happened. There's so many ways this could happen. He was sick to the point he almost died. It could have been from disease. It could have been from attack. I mean, obviously, Paul's in jail. Maybe people didn't want Paul taken care of. Maybe he had to fight people off. We don't know exactly what the circumstances are, but he got so sick that he almost died. We read about this in verse 27 and 30. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus models what it means to be a suffering, sacrificial servant. You read about this. It's amazing, right? He, you read about Epaphroditus in verse 25 and 26. He's he's longing for them. He's anxious. He's distressed, not because he's going to die. He's distressed because he's worried about what the Philippian church is feeling because they know he almost died. And these are people who know how to put the interests of other people before themselves. Paul and uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus. That's why Paul wants Epaphroditus to go back because he knows they're anxious about what happened to him. He wants them to go back so they can have joy, honor this friend that they have sent to Paul. Epaphroditus persevered. Timothy was proven in his worth. He was tested. And Epaphroditus, too, he went through illness, hardship, even death. And Paul says, honor such men. It's not just to give them accolades and attention. He says, emulate them. Be like them. Because they're being like Jesus. Model your lives, your church, after their sacrifice and willingness to submit. And that's a needed rebuke in my own heart. I was thinking about this. The last few years, I've got a chance to serve in Zambia and Thailand. Uh, a number of years ago, I feel like it's almost over a decade ago, we went to Ensenada with the youth group. I remember, I was trying to process how I planned, how I packed, 
And there's one theme as I thought about the way I went about my planning, my schedule, my packing even. It was all to protect creature comforts, a majority of it. I remember in the Ensenada, Ed was the leader at the time. And Ed remembers this because this, he, I remember talking to him. He's like, this group is so much softer than the other, other groups because back then, a long time ago, I guess the groups wouldn't shower as frequently because they just didn't have access on the compound we lived at. But, you know, there was this place we could pay for showers and they would go maybe like once or twice that week. But our group was just complaining about needing to shower more. And so we went like sometimes twice in one day because we just needed a shower because we were just used to being clean regularly. And not that that's bad. I'm not criticizing our group or myself even necessarily for that desire because we have certain ways we're used to living. And yet when we're called to the service of others. Are we willing to put their interests, their concerns over above our own and process that, think through that? What does that look like for us in our circumstances? And I realize so much of my thinking, my planning, my, my packing for those trips is about protecting rather than giving. This sacrificial life from Epaphroditus to the point of death, it stands in such contrast to the individualism and the busyness of church and life today. Many of us, myself included, we think about church and fellowship as something we can be done with as efficiently as possible because my life is already so full of commitments and amusements. They sent this guy and he was willing to spend his life in that season caring for the needs of Paul in prison. And he's not expecting this to be something that only super people should do. Not everyone's going to do exactly like what Epaphroditus did, but he's like, all of us should have that mind among ourselves where we put other people's interests above our own. Imagine if you were hanging out with a church where everyone did that. That would be an amazing church. But so often it's many of us looking after the interests of ourselves and only a few people looking at the interests of others. Increasingly, if we're maturing in Christ, that's what it should look like. That's actually why the early church grew and why the gospel spread so fast because more people were willing to look at the interests of others than when they were looking at the interests of themselves. And the more that the church looks only at the interests of themselves, the more that church, more that Christian will die. That, that's not inherent to the gospel. That We have a Lord who literally emptied himself, became obedient. The creator became obedient to death. Think about that. And that's the same call we have. We see also this other thing we should emulate from Epaphroditus. Look at verse 30. Just emphasize this as we conclude. For he nearly died for the work of Christ. The work of Christ. That's what I want to focus on. Paul uh, says about Timothy, he served with Paul in the gospel. So Work of Christ in the gospel. If we want to model our lives after these Christ followers, Timothy, Epaphroditus, we need to see that their life was centered around Jesus and his mission. But what, what got them together, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, wasn't their common interest in hobbies or similar background. They got together, were committed to embodied mission and friendship because they were centered on Jesus and his gospel. They were people who did not merely have salvation in Jesus, they had empowerment to live out that gospel for Jesus. 
They looked at their life not only as having their own purposes and God kind of blessing that to happen. They reoriented their whole lives so that Jesus would be at the center. They, they realized, to put it in our common phrases, that the mission of the church was not just for those special people who are extra committed, but they were called, all of us were called to that mission. They saw Jesus, his gospel as their mission. We saw, we can read about it, we kind of infer a little bit about Epaphroditus' background from his name. Names meant a lot in their time. And his name, Epaphroditus, probably means his parents were pagan worshipers of Aphrodite. Now you can sense, you can even hear that, right? Aphrodite, Epaphroditus. They probably worshiped Aphrodite and his parents named him a name that would kind of give him protection and service to Aphrodite. But by the grace of Jesus, not only was Epaphroditus born new into a new family with God, he was born into a totally new purpose and mission. No longer serving Epaphrodite, but Jesus. And he begins to reorient his life over the service of the work of Christ. And part of how he feels called to that is to care for Paul's needs, risk his life and limb to the service of the gospel by caring for Paul in this way. And he was willing to serve to the point of death. Look at verse 25 again. I've thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and my fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister in need. Look at all of this. It's amazing. He wants to send Epaphroditus back and he tells them all these titles, brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, minister. He's just honoring him. If you want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus, look at Epaphroditus, how he commits and reorients his life. He's a brother, he's a worker, he's a soldier. He works even to the point of death. One kind of maybe tangential but related application I was thinking about when it comes to this sending back and forth of Timothy and Epaphroditus and, you know, Paul and the Philippian church kind of sending these guys back and forth. I was like, I was thinking this last year, a lot of our conversations around global mission, you know, we really haven't been able to send any short-term teams. Many of the countries were locked down and then we were locked down and now we're not locked down and they're locked down. And so it's kind of this endless cycle of not being accessible. But one of my hopes, I mean, just throw this out there for our church to consider and especially for those of us who have been involved in mission, we really need to figure out ways to be present in the next year with our missionaries as much as possible. Think about how hard it's been for us to go through COVID this last year and a half and how many of our brothers and sisters are serving in places where they really are isolated because there's no body there. They are the body or the body is very small. I was reading this and I was like, we... If anything, we spend our resources, time, and energy in the next year. Our missionaries need us to be there with them. If not anything else, to do exactly what Timothy and Epaphroditus are doing, meeting their needs, caring for them, going to them so that we don't just talk to them through Zoom and like, I want to be here with you so you can cry with me over the losses you've had, so you can rejoice for the joys that you experience. We need to be with them, church. You know, that's not exactly related to everything here, but I was reading and just convicted. This is, this is what we need to do with mission the next year. Of all the things we long to do, if we don't do this with the many missionaries we sent out, we are not even emulating this. It's very clear to us in Philippians. We need to care for them. We need to be present with them. We need to spend personal church resources so we can care and be with them because they need us. 
We often forget that, that they need us as much as we need them. Like Mike, I want to be like Mike. When I was 10 years old, I wasn't that short comparatively, so I thought I could still be like Mike. Paul tells us, be like Timothy. Because he's like Jesus, who's putting other people's interests before his own, who knows healthy relationships. Be like Epaphroditus, who served, reoriented his entire life to give himself for the mission of Jesus. Who are you modeling your Christian life after? Because you are somewhere, either unintentionally or intentionally right now. Who is shaping your thoughts, your words, your actions? Let Paul teach us the importance of finding faithful gospel models. Let Timothy show us what it means to put other people first. Let Epaphroditus show us what it looks like to sacrifice and risk even health and safety for the service of Christ and his mission.